afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. And uh, we're going to share together lesson number 28 tonight. So let's get straight into it. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this great opportunity to open your word, how deep it is, how wonderful it is. And we pray that we might see great things out of your word. Father, as we talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray for that gift to be manifest amongst us as we open your word, that we might understand the greater depths of your word and that you would give us the conviction and the power to follow what you've asked us to do in these last days. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Prophecy Seminar lesson number 28. Um, I have a big visual feed on for you, so I'm just inviting you to sit back, relax, and uh, direct your attention to the screen. Ever since the fall of humanity, God has communicated to us through the holy prophets. The prophet Daniel stands in direct line with many of the other great prophets of scripture. The visions and dreams that Daniel saw and recorded in his book of 12 chapters are part of the collection of the prophets known as the holy scriptures and how thankful we are for this tremendous revelation that God has given to us in the Bible and how indebted we are to the prophets for the wonderful and inspiring messages that they have sent. Well, in this lesson, we wish to examine the actual gift of prophecy as it appears in the life of Daniel and the rest of Scripture and then discover if the gift of prophecy is still being manifested today. Tonight, I have four discovery questions for you. Number one, in what two main ways does God speak with his prophets? Secondly, what two types of prophets are mentioned in scripture? Thirdly, what is the main purpose of the gift of prophecy? And fourthly, what are the two main characteristics of God's last day remnant church? So here we are, lesson 28. Thanks for joining us. If you're joining us via YouTube, the lesson can be downloaded under the description bar in the drop-down menu, and you can follow along as well in the actual lesson guide. So let's get into Daniel and the gift of prophecy. Our first heading tonight is the prophet Daniel, but that's not where we're going to start. Question one says, how does God communicate to a prophet? And we're going back to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6. Moses wrote, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and I speak to him in a dream. 
Our question was tonight to start off lesson 28. How does God communicate to a prophet? The answer seems very simple. The answer is dreams and visions. A dream occurs while the prophet sleeps, whereas a vision occurs while he's still awake. These did not arise out of the ordinary experiences of life, but were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Question two, did Daniel have dreams and visions? We're in Daniel 7.1 and 8.1. What do you think the answer is? Did Daniel have driven <laughs> dreams and visions? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. I'm sure you remember back to Daniel chapter 7 and the four beasts that came out of the waters and then the reign of the little horn power. In Daniel 8 verse 1, Daniel was going to recount the uh, incident of the two animals that represented uh, Medo-Persia and Greece, which is the ram and the hairy goat. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. We're asking question, did Daniel have dreams and visions? He certainly did. And friends, not only did you need to be able to have a dream and a vision and connect powerfully with heaven, you also needed to be able to remember it and you also needed to be able to have enough faith in God that the Holy Spirit could give you the correct interpretation. Question three, describe some of the physical phenomena that accompanied Daniel while in vision. And most people are ignorant of this. It's tucked away in Daniel chapter 10. Let's look at verses 8 to 10 and verses 17 and 18 in two parts. We're going to look at A, B and C, then D and E. In Daniel 10, 8, therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigour was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. We're looking at the physical phenomena that Daniel underwent when in vision. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. We're in Daniel 10.10. 10. Suddenly, Daniel writes, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. We're describing some of the physical phenomena that accompanied Daniel while in vision. Firstly, there was no strength that remained in him. He seemed to be in some sort of unconscious state, a deep sleep on his face, and then a hand touched me, which made him tremble on his knees and on the palms of his hands. In part D, we go to 17 and 18, for how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? Daniel here is relating to the angel, the angelic being from heaven. As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. 18. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. So friends, commentators say that this is possibly the angel Gabriel. Daniel says that he's pretty breathless. There's no breath left in him during this vision and he needed an angel from heaven to actually strengthen him. Certain physical phenomena accompany the prophets while in vision, demonstrating 
to those around them that they are receiving something that came from a supernatural source. All right, well, let's go to our second heading tonight. The gift of prophecy in Bible times are at the bottom of page two of our lesson guide. Who is the source of the messages that the prophets received in vision in 2 Peter 1.21? For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it's very important to notice that that word moved by the Holy Spirit also means directed, compelled, um, inspired to write down exactly what God had shared. So holy men of God did not write down their own opinions. They spoke as they were moved and driven and directed by the powerful Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the subject of our study tonight. Question five, will God do anything on the earth without first telling his prophets? I love this text. It's absolutely incredible. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Friends, isn't it absolutely fantastic that the God of heaven actually wants to reveal to us what we need to know in these last days to be able to move forward in faith and combat the wiles and the evils of the devil. Will God do anything on the earth without first telling his prophets? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. Please have a look at the screen. Before God does anything of significance involving his people on earth, he first of all reveals to the prophets through dreams and visions. Throughout biblical history, God spoke through a variety of individuals. You know, Daniel was not unique in receiving the prophetic gift. In fact, God chose men and he also chose women such as Miriam, Holder and Anna. God chose to give the prophetic gift to those individuals who could best serve him at the time. I'm going to pause for a moment and ask you a question without notice. Do you remember how many women prophetesses there were in the Bible? All right. Well, the answer is that there were eight. We've shared some of them with you, Miriam. I've added in the name of Deborah or Deborah in Judges 4.4. You might like to write that reference down. There was also Holder in 2 Kings 22.14 and Anna who saw the baby Jesus being brought in by his parents, Joseph and Mary, and believed that she'd seen the Messiah. In Luke 2, 36 to 38, you'll find out that Anna was a prophetess. And then the last four are all in one family, the four daughters of Philip. You know, it's pretty challenging to raise four daughters, but can you imagine raising four daughters who are prophets? I wonder if they ever said, Dad, I knew you were going to say that, but maybe not. As one examines the prophetic gift in scripture, it becomes clear that there were two basic groups of prophets. Number one, those whose written revelations are recorded in the Bible, such as Moses, Daniel, and John the Revelator. Then there were those whose writings did not form part of sacred scripture, but who only gave oral presentations, such as Enoch, Elijah, Elisha and John the Baptist. 
And yet these prophets were just as inspired as the other Bible prophets. Thus, people can be regarded as prophets and not have their writings regarded as a part of sacred scripture. So I'd like you to remember that because that could actually come up in the quiz. I don't have the gift of prophecy. I just know that already. Let's go to question six. What is one of the gifts that God has given to his New Testament church? We're in Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It refers here to Jesus um, going back to heaven and he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What is one of the gifts that God gave to the New Testament church? He gave some to be apostles. The gift of apostleship is to raise up a community of faith. The prophets are those who preach as well as predict. Evangelists are those who shed the gospel, share the gospel around the world and bring people to Jesus Christ. The shepherds are the pastors and the teachers are those who indoctrinate with God's word. The gift of being a prophet is one of the spiritual gifts that God has given the New Testament church. Do we still have evangelists, pastors and teachers today? Absolutely, yes. Then why shouldn't we have prophets in the last days? Question seven, how long were these gifts, these spiritual gifts, including the gift of being a prophet to remain in the church in Ephesians 4, 13? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, friends, it's very important that the church be united, that we be united totally in the knowledge of the Son of God, because we understand Scripture in the same way. And then we grow up into the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the perfect stature. And that's talking about spiritual growth and spiritual development. Friends, this text makes it very clear these spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy, are to remain in the church until the church reaches perfection, which will not be until the second coming of Christ. Paul's point is very clear. As long as we are on this earth, we will need all the gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of prophecy. We're at question number eight. What is the purpose of the gift of prophecy? And we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3. But he who prophesies, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So Paul gives us three hints as to the nature of prophecy. The purpose of the gift of prophecy is not just predictive, it is edification. Edify means to build up. Exhortation is an old English word meaning encouragement to really encourage people in the word and also bring the comfort of God's word. That's also the role of the blessed Holy Spirit. We're at the top of page four. The gift of prophecy is not primarily the ability to predict the future. Many Bible prophets, such as Daniel, did predict the future, but many others did not. Their work was to edify, encourage or exhort and comfort the church. Thus, one can be a prophet without necessarily predicting the future. 
So let me just share with you, there are two types of prophecy. Number one, there's foretelling and prediction. We think of a, the prophet in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, who had visions of heaven and uh, chariots and wheels within wheels and the sanctuary. Then there's a second type of, type of prophecy, which is foretelling and preaching. And that would be best shown by John the Baptist, the great evangelist. We're on our third heading, the gift of prophecy beyond Bible times and question nine. What counsel did the Apostle Paul give the Thessalonians concerning the gift of prophecy? We go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 21. Paul warns the church at Thessaloniki in Greece, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. He was very, very clear to say that they were not to uh, quench the Holy Spirit who gave the prophecies. Do not despise them. Do not mistreat them. Do not downgrade or downplay them. Test all the things that scripture says, and then hold fast those things which are good and true. Have you ever thought if God did not plan to send prophets after Bible times, Paul would have cautioned the Thessalonians to disregard anyone in the future who would claim to have the prophetic gift. It's a good point, isn't it? Instead, Paul tells them not to neglect the prophets, but to prove them and test them. And if they prove true, to hold fast to their teachings. Certainly, Paul believed that prophets would exist in the future. Well, what kind of prophets did Jesus warn against? And yes, he gave a strong warning in Matthew 7, 15. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Friends, you notice false prophets do not come as themselves. They do not show their true nature of deception. And so we are warned very clearly that there will be false Christ, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 23 and 24, and false prophets. If there were not going to be any genuine prophets, Jesus would have warned against all prophets. The fact that he warned against false prophets indicates the presence of the genuine. Well, let's ask the question, do we have any false prophets today? I believe that there are many false prophets on social media and on platforms such as YouTube. But I'm thinking more of those who are in touch with the spirit world, like astrologers, mediums, palm readers, channelists, and spiritualists. So yes, friends, we are surrounded today by messages that directly contradict God's word. We have many, many, many false prophets today. Who does Malachi suggest will appear before the coming of the Lord in Malachi chapter four and verse five? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What does this mean? Will Elijah come back from the dead? What does that mean? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the second coming of Jesus. Friends, connected with the coming of Elijah is the gifts of prophecy. It's not simply Elijah, but Elijah the prophet who is to come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it's speaking here about the Elijah message. 
The Elijah message was, as you remember, the battle on Mount Carmel between the false prophets of Baal, over 800 of them cutting themselves and calling Baal to show himself. And then eventually, uh, the, towards the going down of the sun, Elijah said, enough. Baal isn't going to show up. And so Elijah called on the God of heaven to manifest himself. And he worshipped the true God and gave glory. And you know what happened. Fire came down from heaven. Friends, the Elijah message is a call in the last days to worship the true God. It's also the Elijah message that was given through John the Baptist when he said, prepare to meet the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths in the desert. And so, friends, this is a worldwide message. This last day Elijah message is also uh, inspired and encompasses the three angels' messages. And that is that you and I need to tell people that Jesus Christ is coming back very, very soon. Do you remember the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14, 7 to 12? The first angel's message is to worship God as creator. A lot of Christians today believe God created through evolution, but we need to get back to the Genesis record, the book of origins. And there in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we find a beautiful gift at the end of the creation week, and that is God's seventh day Sabbath. We best worship God as creator by keeping his original day of worship, the day of worship that's never been changed. The second angel's message is a call to come out of Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And so, friends, we are to come out of false religious systems. The third angel's message is a very solemn message to not worship the beast power. That is the beast of Revelation 13, 1 to 11. Neither to worship his image, which is the second half of Revelation chapter 13, nor to receive their mark, which is listed at the very end of Revelation chapter 13. Friends, God has an Elijah message to get back to the true worship of the great God of heaven. And I hope that that is the God that you worship. We're in question uh, 12 at the bottom of page four. What great revival of the prophetic gift did the prophet Joel foresee? We're in Joel 2, 28 to 30. This is a prediction from the Old Testament, from Old Testament times. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What spirit? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy boys and girls, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Friends, that last verse, verse 30, actually roots and grounds that prophecy into a last day events time period. But let's answer this question first. What great revival of the prophetic gift did the prophet Joel foresee? He said, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. There is one example I'd like to give of this. There was a young man named Joseph Wolf in Europe, and he left home at 11. And then he became a missionary. 
he studied to be a missionary and headed off as a missionary and went round the world preaching about the second coming of Jesus at the age of 21 in the 1800s. There is a direct fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy where Joel said, in the future, your sons and daughters will prophesy, old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. Question 13, at what time will this great prophetic outpouring take place in Joel 2.31? Here's the time frame. The sun shall be turned into darkness. We've discovered this before. And the moon into blood, if you remember the date, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the great Lisbon earthquake was the great earthquake in 1755. And then these events took place after that. The sun will be turned into darkness at 1780 before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This marks that we are actually living since 1780 in the last days, the time of the end, and then very soon we're going to face the end of time. Joel predicted that sometime after the darkening of the sun, which was fulfilled on May 19, 1780, more details in lesson 23, and before the coming of the Lord, this great prophetic gift would be restored back to the church. Friends, I want to tell you that this illustration on the screen is incorrect. The original dark day was not an eclipse and looked more like this, but it took place on May 19, 1780. So friends, we are well and truly in to the last days. Question 14, in what group of people would the prophetic gift appear at this time in Joel 2? 28 to 32. Let's just look at verse 32. We read the other verses before, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Friends, what group of people would the prophetic gift appear, would appear among the remnant? And we're about to find out who that is, who the Lord would call. Where would he call them from? Well, he would be calling them out of false religious systems because Babylon has fallen. Question 15, what are the two key Bible identification points of the remnant? We go to Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon, who we know is Satan, was enraged with the woman, who we know stands for the pure church, and Satan went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the ones who remain, the residue or the remnant, as the King James Version says. This remnant actually do two things. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What are the two key Bible identification points of the remnant? That's very, very important if you're looking for a last day church. You need to look for a church that actually keeps everything that the Bible teaches. And that certainly narrows down the list. Friends, Joel predicted that God's last day remnant church would have the gift of prophecy. And one of the identifying marks of the remnant church, according to Revelation 12, 17, is that they not only keep the commandments of God, but they also have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're now asking that question, what is this testimony of Jesus Christ? We go to Revelation 19 and verse 10. John the Revelator is in vision and he is speaking to an angel. 
and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's our answer. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's the best testimony we could ever give about Jesus Christ? The best testimony we could ever give about Jesus Christ would be to have the Holy Spirit testify about Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, knows the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Question 17, is the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of the prophets the same thing in Revelation 19, 10, and then 22, 8, and 9? And so I fell at his feet to worship him. The angel said, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant, and I'm of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, John. John, don't worship me. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We then jump to 22, 8, and 9. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. There's our answer. And of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. I want to challenge you tonight, if you're a Christian, are you and I actually of those who keep the words of this book are we really do we really keep all the words of god's book or do we tend to cherry pick the ones that we agree with and struggle with the ones that we don't we talked about some of those in our lesson last week in lesson number 27 we looked at the standards that god has for his people in the last days that was a very very important lesson i hope you didn't miss it and that you can catch it up if you did what is the spirit of prophecy and prophets are they the same thing well we found out that the angel said i'm of your brethren who have the testimony of jesus and then he said i'm of your brethren the prophets and so you can see those two phrases are linked revelation 19 10 and 22 9 are identical except that Revelation 19.10 refers to the spirit of prophecy and Revelation 22.9 calls them prophets. Thus, one of the marks that identifies the remnant church is that it will have the gift of prophecy. Friends, what's an easy way of understanding what the spirit of prophecy is? Very simply, it's this. The spirit of prophecy is just another word for the Holy Spirit who gives prophetic words and guidance to the prophets. The spirit of prophecy is always the Holy Spirit. Let's go to heading number four. We are near the top of page six, and our heading is, let's look at the gift of prophecy today. The Bible foretells that in the last days before the coming of the Lord, God will raise up a remnant a church that will keep all the commandments of God and that will also have the gift of prophecy. In order to qualify as the remnant church, the church must have the gift of prophecy. It is one of the special marks of identification that the last day church has. 
The same gift that inspired the prophet Daniel will be duplicated in the end time by a restoration of the gift of prophecy to the church. Did God fulfill this prediction? Did he actually send the gift of prophecy to the remnant church after the darkening of the sun in 1780? Let's go to that time period and find out what happens. So, friends, I'm going to say, yes, God did via three special messages. God prepared to share the last day gift of prophecy with his remnant church via two men and one woman. Can you take a break from the lesson? I'd like to give you some extra information. How did God pour out this last day gift of prophecy? There were two men. One man was a proud Afro-American. The other man was a Caucasian. And the lady involved was very young. And of course, she was Caucasian as well. Let's have a look at prophet number one. God gave the spirit of prophecy to this man. His name is William Ellis Foy. William Ellis Foy lived from 1818 to 1893. He lived a long life. William Ellis Foy was a black American in his early 20s who received several dramatic visions in 1842. Notice this is 42 years after the dark day. The first vision he received, January 18, lasted two and a half hours. And the second one was February 4. And that one lasted 12 and one half hours. Sometime before the date of October 22 and 1844, Foy was apprehensive to share these visions. However, he trusted God and shared what he'd been given. After traveling extensively with his message, he was given two more visions shortly before the great disappointment. New material was presented to him showing three platforms, not one and two that they'd already had, but a third platform, which indicated a third phase in the message from God for that time directly before the great disappointment. But Foy refused to carry out the task in revealing what God had shown him and he ceased his public work. Some reports say he was finding it hard to get traction. He was fearful. The message would be um, not received well, and he felt there were also some racial issues in the community. So Foy died, sadly, on November 9, 1893, at the age of 75. Foy's story is, though, a good testimony to us in the present time. We are chosen by God to do the gospel work, but we often give excuses. Think not to shut away the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. We should always be willing to move ahead in faith. Well, I want to take you from prophet one to prophet two to prophet three. But before we get to prophet three, we better look at prophet number two. Who was this? This is Hazen Foss, 1818 to 1893. He was another Millerite. Who was Miller? Miller was William Miller, the great revivalist preacher in the 1800s in America, who was preaching the soon return of Jesus Christ. So Hazen Foss was another Millerite who claimed to receive several visions. However, he refused to proclaim them. And God told him he was released from that prophetic ministry. And the message was to be given to Ellen White instead. Well, Hazen Foss was even Ellen White's brother-in-law. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, SDAs believe today that the prophetic gift offered to these two men, Foy and Foss, was instead passed on to a young girl, Ellen Harmon, and she was just 
uh, 17 years of age. So let's have a look now at prophet number three, who was also given a taste of the spirit of prophecy. I'm back in the lesson guide in the second paragraph, but please have a look on the screen. In December of 1844, a 17-year-old girl by the name of Ellen Harmon, later to become known as Ellen White after marrying James White, was in frail health possessing only a third grade education. Ellen received her first vision while kneeling in prayer with a group of women in Portland, Maine. She shrank from the prospect of being called a prophet, yet she dared not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. And so she related what God had shown her. For 69 years, she continued to receive visions and dreams from God. She became one of the most prolific female writers in history with over 50 books still published today. Was this a genuine or counterfeit manifestation? Was it a fulfillment of the biblical promise that the prophetic gift would be restored to the church at the end time? Absolutely. As the Lord God told us in the Old Testament, it shall come to pass afterward that your daughters shall prophesy. And Ellen White was very, very young when she began that work. Question 18, what physical phenomena accompanied Ellen White's visions? Friends, Ellen White's experience was very similar to that of the prophet Daniel. And we've already covered that in question three, but let's go to part A. Did you know that Ellen White did not breathe during her visions? Sometimes her visions lasted for as long as four hours. Physicians who examined Ellen White in vision, other words, doctors, marveled that she did not breathe and yet she still lived. I've read accounts where people would place mirrors under her nose and mouth and there would be no breath on the mirrors. Point number B, at times like Daniel, she experienced a loss of physical strength and then it was replaced remarkably by supernatural strength. Well, during one vision, she held a 17 pound family Bible, which is in our money, uh, eight kilos. During one vision, she had a held a 17 pound or eight kilo family Bible outstretched in her hand for 30 minutes. I'd like you to try that. At that time, she weighed only 97 pounds or 44 kilograms, and she was in very frail health. Obviously, there was supernatural strength. I'm just going to pause and share something with you here, friends. God gave the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy to a very talented black man. And uh, that talented black man was a great preacher. It was the Afro-American William Ellis Foy. But he didn't go on with it. Then God gave the prophetic gift to Hazen Foss, a talented Caucasian American, an older man. But Hazen Foss did not go on with it. So God decided to give the gift of prophecy to a young girl who was very, very sick. A young girl who never finished primary school. And a young girl who would, by record today, have over 130 books published under her name. So friends, this is absolutely remarkable. 
At the bottom of the page, the physical phenomena accompanying the prophet indicates that there is something supernatural about their experience. However, the physical phenomena doesn't tell us whether the experience is from God or Satan. We must then examine the biblical tests of a prophet to determine whether the prophet is from God or Satan. Question 19, what is the first biblical test of a prophet? We go back to Isaiah 8.20. This is a good text because Isaiah was a prophet himself. Isaiah wrote to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. What's the law? Friends, the law is very simply the body of law in the Old Testament, mainly focused in the Ten Commandments. The testimony refers to the witness of the prophets. So that encompasses all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. Please join me on the screen. The expression, the law and the testimony was an Old Testament expression for the Bible. The law referred to the first five books of Moses and the testimony referred to the testimony of the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. The basic meaning of the text is that the prophet must agree with scripture or he is not a genuine prophet. And so the point must be very clear. Any person today who claims to be a prophet must be tested by scripture. What God reveals to his prophets today will not disagree with what he has previously revealed in his word, the Bible. So the Bible is the supreme revelation. If a prophecy, if a prophet disagrees with scripture, that person is very simply a false prophet. As one examines Ellen White in this area, he finds total agreement with scripture. The student is invited to take any book written by Ellen White and examine what she says with the Bible. In every case, the student will find that Ellen White absolutely agrees with the scripture we go to question number 20 what's the second test of a prophet we're on page seven halfway down we're going to first john chapter four and verse two this is of course john the disciple and john the revelator who wrote revelation by this he wrote you know the spirit of god who's the spirit of god another name for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Friends, I know from deliverance ministry that demons are very, very reluctant to ever name Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord or the Son of God. And so this is a very, very reliable test and one that you need to remember. True prophets will attest to the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. They will elevate and exalt Jesus Christ. To test Ellen White in this area, one only has to read her books, such as The Magnificent Desire of Ages, Christ's Object Lessons, Steps to Christ, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, etc. And one very quickly sees that she beautifully fulfills this test of the prophet. An example of Ellen White's constant uplifting of Jesus Christ is seen in the passage quoted in Exhibit 1 and Point A. It's a passage that gives counsel to pastors on how they should preach. I'm just going to read a very short portion of that under A. Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls, confused, bewildered and lost, to the Lamb of God. Lift him up. 
the risen Savior, and say to all who hear, come to him who hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Friends, I want you to be very, very much aware of a wonderful book called The Desire of Ages. It's also published as the book, The Messiah. It's a contemporary version of The Desire of Ages. I actually prefer the original, The Desire of Ages, but some people prefer a more modern version of Ellen White's writings. Well, how powerful is this book? An official in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. was asked which book in that vast library was the best one on the life of Christ. The official gave this answer, and I'm quoting it. My preference or choice will be guided by what I wish to get from the book or books to be read. But let me put it this way. I would put The Desire of Ages by Ellen G. White first for spiritual discernment and practical application. So friends, isn't that a remarkable and absolutely remarkable testimony? I have another testimony I want to share with you right now. Here is a letter from a non-Christian um, from uh, the state of Queensland who I asked to write me a recommendation on the book that he read, The Desire of Ages. Remember, this is written by a non-Christian and his name is Larry. Larry said, I believe that anyone who only has a rough knowledge of who and what Jesus was and why he came to earth in the flesh should read the book, The Desire of Ages or The Messiah, not once, but at least twice. These last moments of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension are so vividly illustrated and expounded with heart-touching passages of his suffering before the cross, being nailed to the cross, his infinite love and despair, were as though Ellen G. White was there herself in person or spirit. For how could she describe these days and nights when the Bible only gives concise descriptions? That's interesting, isn't it? A non-Christian's testimony. It's only after reading these chapters that anyone who only has a lukewarm relationship with our Saviour will find themselves drawn closer to him through these pictures that represent a thousand words or more, perhaps even a skeptic. So that's from Larry from the Gold Coast. That's his personal testimony. And so, friends, we learn that the second Biblical test for a prophet is that that person must uplift and draw attention to Jesus Christ. Ellen White does that all through her writings. She said Jesus must be first and last and best in everything. We're in question 21 at the bottom of page 7. What is the third test of a prophet? We're going to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 verse 20. Jesus said, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. What is the third test of a prophet? Very simply, it's by their fruits. Friends, the Bible prophets were not perfect, nor is any prophet perfect. They were all human. But the general tendency of the life must be in harmony with the word of God. Therefore, Jesus gave us this test himself. Wherefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Friends, this actually means that we know them by their lifestyle. Well, we're going back to the exhibit. And I would like to share with you under point B, no need for you to read it. Please have a look on the screen. 70 years is a long time to live and work before the public under the critical eye of millions of people, largely skeptical, doubtful, 
uncertain, suspicious, and in some cases hostile. If any faults, errors, or inconsistencies existed, they'd be exposed with great satisfaction by opponents. What am I reading? I'm reading from the book, Our Firm Foundation, Volume 1, page 225. Mrs. White lived in various places in New England, USA, Michigan, then over in Switzerland, Australia, and California. She traveled extensively in many parts of the United States, Europe, and Australia, but the fruit of her life and labors attest to her godliness, her sincerity, her zeal, and her earnestness, her upright and noble character, and her consistent Christian contact. Friends, I have another quote here that's uh, from a newspaper. It's August 23, 1915, the New York Independent, I believe, after Ellen White died. She showed no spiritual pride and she sought no filthy lucre, which is Old English for money. Ellen White lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable of the American succession. End of quote. Friends, it's interesting that Ellen Harmon Gould White never claimed for herself to be a prophetess. She would like to refer to herself as simply the servant of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, or the handmaiden of the Lord. And this shows her true humility. Let me go to the last quote on the bottom of page one on exhibit one. I want to read this from the Saint Helena Star. This is another newspaper. The life of Mrs. White is an example worthy of emulation by all. She was a humble, devout, disciple of Christ and ever went about doing good. Honoured and respected by all who appreciate noble womanhood, consecrated to unselfish labour for the uplifting and betterment of mankind, end of quote. St. Helena Star, St. Helena, California, July 23, 1915. It's interesting to see what the newspapers say about the life and ministry of Ellen White. We're in question 22, which is at the bottom of page uh, Seven, let's go to Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. Jeremiah, also a prophet, wrote this, the fourth of the tests. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. What is the fourth test of a Bible prophet? When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Friend, surely this is a very important ingredient that a prophet tells the truth and is honest and has a 100% track record. The final biblical test of the prophet is fulfilled predictions. Bible prophets gave predictions that dealt with the main themes of the great controversy in salvation. They didn't deal with mundane things such as winning elections, astrology, or the lotto numbers. If the prophet predicts the future, it will come to pass. But if the prophecy fails, the prophet would not be genuine. Like most Bible prophets, Ellen White did not give a lot of predictions. Her work was to edify, exhort, and comfort the church. Yet there were times when she did give predictions, and on those she can be tested. I'm going to pause there and tell you one, and this is not in the lesson. In 1902, Ellen White warned that San Francisco and Oakland, which is the west coast of the United States, as you know, would be visited by the Lord 
because they were becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Friends, I think the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah shares what the problem was there, and that was one of rampant sexual immorality. So this was written in a manuscript in 1902, page 114. It didn't take long for this prophecy to come true. In fact, barely four years. On Thursday, April 19, 1906, here's the Boston Post, and you can see the date on the newspaper. Thursday, April 19, 1906. Fire follows earthquake. Heart of the city is in ruins. Section of San Francisco wiped out with $100 million damage. 100,000 people homeless. Thousands dead and injured while the flames still rage. Friends, that's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Going back to the note, like Bible prophets, her predictions were sometimes conditional upon obedience, but her insights clearly reveal the prophetic voice speaking through her. Now, we are directed in our lesson guides, halfway down page eight, to look at exhibit 1.C. Rather than do that, I would like to give you some extra information that is not in your lessons. So please direct your attention to the screen, and I'm going to take you on a journey. Rather than read from exhibit point C, let's ask more about recent fulfillments of Ellen White's predictions. So we're going to share with you her New York City visions given July 5, 1906. All right, let's go into what they are all about. Let me share with you two main visions that she had concerning New York City back in the 1900s. I have no light in particular in regard to what is coming on New York, only that I know that one day the great buildings there will be thrown down by the turning and overturning of God's power. Death will come in all places. This is why I'm so anxious for our cities to be warned. Friends, this is a remarkable statement. By the turning and overturning of God's power, this is something absolutely big. So let me share with you two main visions that she had concerning New York City back in the 1900s. We're going to go to a New York City vision in 1909. Let me read and share with you what she wrote from that vision. It's vision number two, received three years later in 1909. This is what she wrote, quote, On occasion, on one occasion, when in New York City, I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. These buildings were warranted to be fireproof and they were erected to glorify the owners and builders. Higher and higher still these buildings arose and in them the most costly materials were used. Those to whom these buildings belonged were not asking themselves how can we best glorify God. The Lord was not in their thoughts. And she says, I thought that those who are thus investing their means could see their course as God sees it. They are piling up magnificent buildings, but how foolish in the sight of the ruler of the universe is their planning and devising. They're not studying with all the powers of heart and mind how they might glorify God. They've lost sight of this, the first duty of man. Well, as these lofty buildings went up, the owners rejoiced with ambitious pride that they had money to use in self-gratifying and provoking the envy of their neighbours. 
I'm quoting her, much of the money that had been thus invested had been obtained through exaction, that is through grinding down the poor. These men forgot that in heaven an account of every business transaction is kept. Every unjust deal, every fraudulent act is there recorded. She wrote, the time is coming when in their fraud and insolence, men will reach a point that the Lord will not permit them to pass. And they will learn that there is a limit to the forbearance of Jehovah. I've just read to you from Testimonies to the Church, volume nine, page 12 and point three. Let me read this to you. I go on with her vision. In On one occasion, when in New York City, I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. These buildings were warranted to be fireproof and they were erected to glorify their owners and builders. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire. I'm now going to ask you how best you think this prophecy might take place and has it taken place? I continue with her vision. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said they are perfectly safe. Friends, when the plane struck the towers in the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack on New York City, firemen and policemen ran up into the buildings through the stairwells and they stopped people coming down and said, it's okay, the sprinkler systems will work. It's best to go back to your desk. We are able to handle this crisis. She wrote, men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said they're perfectly safe. And so here's the Twin Towers when they were new. But these buildings were consumed, she said, and saw in vision as if made of pitch. Now, friends, it's kind of interesting because I actually have this book here. This is Testimonies to the Church by Ellen White. And it's very interesting because it's this book is called Nine Testimonies and it starts on page 11. So this prophecy that's written here, this vision that she wrote, is actually recorded in Testimonies to the Church, volume nine. And it actually starts reading the last crisis on page 11. It might be just a coincidence, but I thought it was of interest. So friends, she said that these buildings were consumed if made as if made of pitch. Do you remember what happened? I continue on with her prophecy. She wrote, the fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. Now friends, this doesn't make any sense because fire engines should be able to direct the stream of water to the very top of the building. But was this the case? Friends, the fires were at the top end of the Twin Towers and so the fire engines were useless to actually get the water up there. The planes impacted cut off the water and sprinkler systems so the fires could not be extinguished by human intervention from the ground. When each of the twin towers suddenly came crashing down, the fire and rescue services below had to evacuate the area. 
and in doing so were covered in debris and ash. But many died in vain, even up in the towers, while they were helping to free the injured. So Ellen White had written 92 years earlier that the fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. What a remarkable prophecy. And in the time that it was written made no sense at all. In fact, in recent times, 30, 40 years ago, made no sense at all. Prior to this event of 9-11, we could not understand what this prophecy meant of a fire in New York City that could not be put out. Many brave people gave their lives in trying to save others. She wrote in continuing the prophecy, the following words, which I now have. The firemen were unable to operate the engines. Now, here's what I want to share with you of what the newspaper report said. When they couldn't save the buildings, they tried to save the people and save the people they did. But sometimes it was so difficult and so hopeless. All the firemen could do was watch and pray. Remember that Ellen White had written that she'd seen an alarm of fire. What an apt description for a day of shame and terrorism. Finally, I want to read her last description of the meaning of all these events. She wrote, the world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon, the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. I'm reading from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9 by Ellen G. White, page 14, paragraph 2. And you can look it up yourself on the internet. Finally, she wrote on page 17, paragraph 2, fearful tests and trials await the people of God. The spirit of war is stirring the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And so, friends, I just want to close with these thoughts, and I've ended the quotes of Ellen White. So in the midst of this time of trouble, it's coming. A time of trouble is coming such as has never been experienced before on this earth, as in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And God's chosen people will have to stand unmoved. I believe where we are in that time now. Satan and his host cannot destroy God's people for angels that excel in strength will protect them. Here's a text that you need to memorize in Psalm 91:11. For God shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. I hope you'll memorize that and burn that beautiful promise into your mind that the Lord Jesus will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. So friends, I was wanting to just illustrate that point, uh, which was the third point, the life and fruits. And then we went on to her predictions were all fulfilled accurately. As one examines the life and ministry of Ellen White, the note says before question 23, in relation to the four great tests of a prophet, it becomes very clear that Ellen White meets every one of these tests. The physical phenomena indicated we're dealing with a supernatural force as being from God.
Question 23, what's the relationship of the writings of Ellen White to the Bible? And this is very, very important. Friends, I want to tell you that Ellen White has already told us what we need to know about this. So she actually uplifts the Bible. Let me share with you the note. Perhaps the most important point of Ellen White's ministry is the fact she consistently pointed people to Scripture. She always uplifted the Bible. The Bible predicted that this gift would come to the last days and would be a tremendous blessing to the church. The evident points that it has come. You know, friends, some people try and say that Seventh-day Adventists take the writings of Ellen White and place them on top of God's word. But that's actually untrue. Seventh-day Adventists are very, very clear that we follow God's word first and foremost. In fact, you remember what Ellen White said? She said that she had been sent to actually um, be a lesser light to direct people to the greater light, which is God's word. And I'm going to share that with you now. So I'm going to read from point D on the exhibit on page three. The writings of Ellen White are not an addition to the Bible. Just as certain prophets mentioned in the Bible who never wrote a word of scripture, yet were inspired by God, so Ellen White's writings do not form a part of scripture. But the Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible writers also inspired her. The Bible is the supreme guide for the Christian. Ellen White did not see her work as an addition to scripture. In fact, she cautioned against this. She described her work as, have a look on the screen, little heed is given to the Bible and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. And friends, I've already just spoken about that and how important it is. And so Ellen White constantly attempted to lead people back to the Bible as the only rule of faith. And in her last public appearances, she took a copy of the sacred scripture. She extended it in her hand toward the congregation and said, brethren and sisters, I commend unto you this book. This was her life work to lead men and women back to the Bible. She declared that if people had followed the Bible, her work would not have been necessary. But because people had neglected the Bible, God had chosen prophets to call their attention to the neglected truths of Scripture. I'll let you read the rest of that exhibit yourself. So, friends, in question 24, our final question in the lesson, are you thankful that God has fulfilled his word by restoring the prophetic gift to the remnant church in these last days? I hope that you can say yes, that you've seen that God has a last, last day ministry of prophecy. Friends, I want to tell you that this DVD is available. It's called Prophetic Inspiration, The Holy Spirit at Work. For more than 70 years, Ellen G. White spoke as a messenger from God, and it goes through Ellen G. White. Is she a genuine prophet? What's her relationship to the Bible? Uh, does God speak through people? Um, how inspiration works? What's the biblical model? And in chapter five, how to test a prophet? What are the biblical criteria? And uh, that might even be on the internet. I'm not sure, but you can look it up. Let's go now to our discovery questions. Number one, in what two main ways does God speak with his prophets? We learned it was through what? 
visions and dreams, but there are other ways like urine and thummim. I also remember that the so-called prophet Balaam, um, God actually spoke to him through his donkey. So God is very, very creative in the way he reaches out to his prophets. What two types of prophets are mentioned in scripture? There's canonical and non-canonical. It just means those who are in the actual ancient biblical writings, the canon of scripture, and those who are not there are still valid prophets. What is the main purpose of the gift of prophecy? It's to edify, to build up, to strengthen, and to lead God's church into all truth. Number four, what are the two main characteristics of the remnant church? They must keep the commandments of God, not just nine, but they must keep all 10 of the commandments of God. And also this last day church has a special mark of identification in that it has the gift of prophecy, a last day prophetic gift. Friends, I'd like to tell you that soon the prophecy seminar will be finished in lesson 32. I need to remind you that this exhibit is in lesson 32. We have a prize, which is a $100 gift voucher from our local Better Books and Food, otherwise known as the ABC or the Adventist Book Centre. If you want to be in the running for that prize, you need to finish this uh, at the end of lesson uh, 31. So it has to be handed in after Wednesday, December 8. So if you're on the Wednesday night group, you have to get that to me Wednesday night after the program or before the program. It's very, very important that that has to be marked on Thursday, December 9. Friends, let's uh, ask you to place your uh, name on those envelopes. It's great to see how many are still doing the quiz. Our response questions tonight are, are you thankful that God has given this most precious prophetic gift to the remnant church in these last days through Alan White? Number two, having seen the SDA church meets the two main characteristics of the remnant church, that is they keep the commandments of God, all of them, and have the gift of prophecy. Is it your desire to prepare to become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church? Friends, I would like to tell you I'd love you to contact me and um, I am a, a registered minister of the gospel um, who can um, baptize people and I would love to be in contact with you. And we would love to see you join um, God's Last Day Remnant Church. So just contact me, please. Let's go to the quiz questions. They're true and false. Number one, whenever God spoke to a prophet, he dictated word for word what they should write. True or false? Is that what we learned tonight from God's word? Whenever God spoke to a prophet, he dictated word for word what they should write. True or false? Number two, the Bible indicates that the gift of prophecy will exist in the church until the end of time. True or false? Number three, is it possible to be a prophet and yet not have written a book in the Bible? Absolutely. Uh, well, I better not answer that question, is it? <laughs> Number four, I'm trying to help you. The Bible predicted that the gift of prophecy would not exist in the remnant church true or false number five because of the supernatural physical phenomena which accompanied ellen white's visions as she met the four biblical tests of a prophet she can be regarded as a genuine prophet in these last days true or false all right let's just go through the answers very quickly number one the answer is false number two the answer is true number three the answer is true 
Number four, the answer is false. And number five, the answer is true. Did anyone notice that the order of answers is exactly the same as the quiz in uh, lesson number 27? Possibly you did and possibly you didn't. Well, tonight we started in Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel was in vision. We learned more about today's last day gift of prophecy in God's last day remnant church. And that is what we've learned in the prophecy seminar tonight. We only have five lessons left, 29, 30, 31, 32. In fact, make that four lessons left. It's going even faster. So our fourth last lesson, prophecy seminar 29, is what happened on earth back in 18, 1844. Who's the mighty messenger of Revelation 10? When did God raise up a special remnant group? to preach the special judgment hour message. How and when did he do that? Why doesn't God ask his people to stay and to reform the churches of Babylon? These are all very, very important uh, topics and questions that we'll handle in our next session. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight for placing the spirit of prophecy, which is your beautiful Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets to give us messages that would help us right down here in the last days. We thank you for all the prophets of scripture. We thank you for those who wrote biblical books and those who didn't. We thank you for last day prophets who meet all the tests. We pray as we continue to study your word and read that you will convince us of what is truth and what is error. And tonight we thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit tonight to help us rightly divide the word of truth. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen. been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, or one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.